Welcome to the podcast of Canadian author Margaret Mackay. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the show. My name is Margaret Mackay. For my first program this year, I'd like you to join me as I interview A.B. Funkhauser, author of Hoyer, Lost and Found. Today we'll be discussing her new novel, Scooter Nation. Good morning, A.B. How are things going? Hello, Magritte, and thank you so much for having me uh, on the program. How are things going? Creatively, I've been writing volumes and volumes like I really haven't before, and I think it has to do with the fact that I can go outside and take long walks, really go through the forest, and I, I just seem to be getting a lot of energy from that. You mentioned that uh, you had been doing a lot of writing. I believe you did nano nano write. Is that the correct pronunciation? Oh gosh, friends and I, uh, we joke. We call it nano nano, sort of a takeoff on the old Mork and Mindy show back from the eighties. It's actually called nano rimo. It's the shortened version for National Novel Writing Month. It's been going on for quite a number of years, but I've actually done it. This is my third time out. And the premise behind NaNoWriMo is that you try to write, you know, between 1,500 or maybe 2,000 words every day, including weekends, during the month of November. And if you can do that at the end of the month, you'll have what amounts to a a really cogent first draft of 50,000 words or more. And as I said, third year out, I prepped for it. I couldn't wait. And then on the 1st of November, I just started to fly. And so here we are now, yeah, in December, no snow. And I've been sort of released from my cave, but I have this new manuscript. So I'm just, I'm psyched. I'm so thrilled. And what's the manuscript about? (laughs) This one came quite out of nowhere, really. I had started uh, a nano last year, what will ultimately be my fourth novel in my series, Unapologetic Lives, or Undertaker. And uh, I started that last November, got my 50,000 words and thought, all right, this year I'll complete it with the second nano. And what happened instead was that uh, I got hit by a bolt of inspiration (laughs) and wound up writing something quite different. It's called Shell Game. It's a bit of a mystery with with many comedic elements, I hope. It's done in in the gonzo style that I love. So it it can be a bit irreverent and the characters are crazy, but essentially what they are doing is protecting a wayward house cat named Carlos who tends to wander. And what you have are disparate neighbors on a street. They don't really know each other until a letter is sent out from animal services saying that cats are to be kept indoors. And ultimately what happens is that these disparate elements, these neighbors who don't know each other, will come together to protect this cat from what I call Animal 5-0. And in doing so, there are all kinds of misunderstandings, things that need to be corrected. Ultimately, it's about community coming together for a common cause. Oh, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. They're they're colorful, you know. There's there's Gus, the the commercial pilot. He's also a swinger, and uh, he shares his home with Soraya, the other woman. I, I don't have a name for her yet, but Carlos loves to visit them because, of course, they're they're swingers and they're very loving. 
couple of streets over, you've got Zoltan the gardener. He is Hungarian and extremely creative. And, and then you've got the Fishers at the top of the street. And there's something going on in the Fisher house. Mrs. Fisher has disappeared. And people are kind of wondering what Mr. Fisher has, has done with her. So that's part of the mystery element. <laughs> oh, cool. Now, you mentioned that it was a gonzo style. Can you explain what gonzo means to those that perhaps don't know? I'm so glad you asked this question. I, I almost feel like it's incumbent upon me to, to bring gonzo to, uh, to Ontario. Gonzo is actually a journalism style that was invented and then promoted by the, the late, great Hunter S. Thompson. He of uh, Rolling Stone magazine, he wrote the definitive expose on Hell's Angels. Basically, what Gonzo style is, is it's a kind of, kind of social consciousness raising, but it's done through, through humor. And so what that means is, is that while the writing might be light and humorous, the subtext, the themes that, that we try to bring out as gonzos are actually quite, quite serious. So things like treating your fellow man with, with dignity, taking care of people who need, need help the most, protecting the innocents, and of course my favorite, avenging, going after those who, well, require punishment. <laughs> that, that is what what Gonzo does. You shine a light on very, very serious matters, but you make it more accessible through humor. I don't know if I've explained it very well, but that that's... That's perfect. <laughs> and I understand your first novel, Hoyer Lost and Found, was also written in this style. It is, but it, you know, it's a funny thing about, uh, about novel writing. I find that the tone the genre even, and I, I, I do mixed multi-genres, it's dictated by the character. I'm a character-driven writer. I love them. They'll spend a lot of time inside their own heads. Hoyer is very, it is paranormal. There's a blithe spirit who walks around. He makes comments. He tries to push the action, pushes the action of the living, breathing characters there are many humorous moments because like all gonzo characters, my blithe spirit, Hoyer, the lawyer, operates completely without filters. So he will say and do things that we would never do in a civilized society and actually get away with it. And so, you know, when somebody acts that way, you will get these humorous moments. He plays tricks on the neighbors. He's not malevolent. He's not out for physical revenge. He's not a murderer, but he does extract some payback, for example, on his neighbor Alphonse, who hated his acacia tree because it was dropping uh, leaves and thorny branches into his swimming pool. So now in his afterlife and with all this freedom, Hoyer decides to topple the tree onto Alphonse's swimming pool, effectively flooding his yard. And uh, he sees this as a sign of maybe there is a god in heaven or some kind of unseen thing that's in his corner helping him extract his revenge. So there's a romantic element too uh, in this story. Enid, Enid Kraus is his funeral director and she assists indirectly in his embalming which is very very difficult because she knew him 
They dated 20 years before. They were lovers. Their relationship ended badly. And she comes into work that first morning uh, to learn that he has passed away and that she's next in the roster to, to go and get him. And tremendous feelings to explore there. Mixed emotions, sadness, anger. What if? If only. Why did things happen this way? And then the twist is that she's actually angry with him for coming back to her this way after all these years. And of course, his spirit is standing behind her saying, you know, are you mad? I didn't want to die. I didn't pick this place. So I don't know. Does that give you a sense? Yes, definitely. Now you said that Hoyer is part of a series. Yes. You're writing, so there's more in the series. Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, It's been a real happy accident, Magritte, that this first novel has generated so much interest, not just in my protagonist, Hoyer and Enid, but in what I call the the tertiary characters, the the side characters. They're the other funeral directors who work at the funeral home. Carla Moretto Salinger Blue, her friend Scooter Creighton, who works at a competing funeral home. I noted that when readers got into contact with me, started emailing me, they'd say, well, what about, about these characters? Why did they do and say the things they did? And I would write back and I'd say, well, you know, because of A, B, C, and D, it was all backstory. And it, it came from one email. Uh, this, this man, a gentleman in Australia actually said, I can't wait to read about them. And that's what really started it. I thought, ah, uh, okay, it's time to tell their story. And then in telling their story, and that story, in fact, I'm happy to say, is coming out uh, through Solstice Publishing either in February or March of 2016, it's called Scooter Nation. And the cool thing about it is that, yes, Carla and Scooter are the protagonists here, but Enid from the first book is actually in there. But now she is a secondary character. And, you know, just just from there, all of these characters, you know, jostling for position, wanting their stories to be told. Yes, it, it has sparked other books. There is uh, The Poor Undertaker, which I'm working on. The Hoyer Effect, which is currently sitting at 89,000 words with no end in sight. I'm going to have to get back to that. That actually deals with Enid and Hoyer's life back in the 80s when they were alive and well and incredibly treacherous and mean to each other. And then, you know, this one that I started during Nano, Shell Game. The idea, the thread that holds all of them together is that the lives are unapologetic. They are gonzos. They say, they do, in order to right wrongs and ultimately grow and become better people. That's the thread in this series. Now, you mentioned um, you're having the new book come out in 2016, Mm -hmm. and you had Hoyer come out in 2015. Yes. (laughs) What does it feel like to have two books published one a year (laughs) type thing. Exciting, exhilarating. I feel like I'm a third person or a third party to this. I sort of step back and look and I, I can't believe I did that. But I did. I play with this notion that that I'm not really the creator, that I'm just transcribing, that these wonderful characters, wherever it is they come from, are just whispering into my ear and I'm transcribing. They're my muses. The, The muses are very, very strong. And 
I listen to them. And so I write as quickly as I can. And again, nano is, is very helpful in that regard. It gives me that discipline to get things down quickly, to, to stick with it. And I mean, God's willing, God's willing, the cat book, uh, Shell Game, uh, will be completed. If I can release it next fall in 2016, I will. Solstice Publishing has been terrific. They get me. They like the humor. And they're an e-publisher, which means they can turn the stories around very quickly. They can get them up on Amazon. They're available in print, too. Uh, I can get them on the shelves in libraries. It's an amazing feeling to be able to to accomplish this, to have something that I can hold in my hands and share with others. People are reading, they're talking, they're commenting about it. My characters now are truly alive. That's fantastic. In writing the books that you have just completed, they take place in a funeral parlor. That's right. Now, it's my understanding that you were a mortician in your past life. <laughs> well, past and present. And, and thank you for, for bringing that up because it just occurs to me that I haven't renewed my, my license with the Board of Funeral Services, and that's due by the end of the month. So I think, I think when I finish up here, Magritte, I'll, I'll go home and pay that. Yes, I worked as a funeral director for 10 years at a wonderful establishment in uh, North Toronto. It was family-run. It was just a joy to work there in, in the sense that the work was not divided up. Different funeral service providers have different business models. In some cases, the work is divided, so a funeral director would either arrange the funeral with the bereaved family members, or they would embalm the deceased person, but not both. In the case of where I was working, I did everything, what we like to call the the old-fashioned approach to the job. And so what that meant was uh, if the phone rang and I happened to pick it up, if I took the call from the bereaved person, then it would follow naturally that I would be the, the director who would meet with the family then, arrange the funeral service details, and then go and pick up the deceased person and actually prepare them for burial or cremation, whatever the family chose. So I was there from start to finish. I did everything. And I think it was critical to me that I do that because I had to understand the both sides, that in this work you're taking care of the dead, but also the living. So it's the people left behind. And as a, as a human being... And as an artist, too, I think, I, I grew because I had access to this very, very special and also very, very closed world. Funeral directing, I suppose, like being a soldier or a surgeon or maybe a cleric, it's, it's not something I don't think that you wake up one morning and say, this is what I want to do. I think it's something that calls out to you over time and... Over a period of many, many years, it just sort of came to me that this was something that, that I could do. And because I could do it, I had to. And I guess that's what a calling is. And so that's my background. I, I worked there for 10 years. And uh, then the writing started. And I, I do. I write fiction. Characters are conjured. They are composites of friends I know 
or people I used to know, or people I wished I had known, and some are just outright fictions. And what I try to do is, is shine a light on the work that we do. So it's the funeral director that I'm, I'm focusing on and how, how they cope and how they get the work done. You know, there's so much more to it than, than say what you would see on, on Six Feet Under, that old show from, from the 2000s. I know for a time attempts were made at, at reality television programs. I didn't like those at all and they did not last. But what we do is physical work. It's also, it's very psychological too. You have to be an ear. You have to be a diplomat. You're dealing with different countries in the case of nationals needing, needing to be repatriated. It, it was so multifaceted. And, uh, and so this is what inspired me to get started. The, the key premise for the first book was, what does a funeral director do when she comes into work and realizes that someone she knew and cared about very much, actually, has passed away and she's next on the roster to, to take care of them? Does she do her work stoically or does she admit to her colleagues that, yes, she had a relationship with this person and that she may not be able to discharge her duties? She's torn. Does she remain silent or does she speak up? And if she speaks up, is she still maintaining that level of professionalism? So these were the the central questions that I wanted to explore in the first one. And then, as I said previously, exploring the motivations and actions of the other characters gave me this idea that the funeral home could be the glue for the series. Vibicon Brothers Funeral Home is founded in 1937. And the second book coming out in in February goes all the way up to the year 2017. So I have this broad, expansive time to play with. The Poor Undertaker actually begins in 1947. It goes up to 1975. This gives me tremendous uh, opportunities to explore the history of that time, the history, the rituals, the way people interacted, the way they treated each other. Uh, impacts of the wars, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, all these things are explored. And that is what a series makes, I guess. The funeral home itself is a character and central in all of the books. This all sounds really interesting, A.B. Could you perhaps read us a little bit from your new book, Scooter Nation? Oh my gosh, I'd be delighted. The excerpt you know what? I'm, I'm going to go with the excerpt that I've, I've put into the, uh, the media kit. It's, it's humorous. It's, it's very odd. I'll, I'll warn you about that. Basically, what I do here is I take the reader back to 1967, where they meet the young Charles Emerson Forsyth. Now, he is a major character in the first book, Hoyer Lost and Found. He's the managing director of Vibagon Brothers, He has been there for over 40 years. In Scooter Nation, we go back a bit to 1967 when he first starts there, uh, what goes through his mind, and what it's like at Vibagon Brothers Funeral Home in 1967. Here we go. The old humpback with the cloudy eyes and Orwellian proletarian attitude pushed past the young embalmer with a curt, Entschuldigen Sie, bitte, excuse me. 
that Charles E. Forsyth, bespectacled and too tall for his own good, didn't speak a word of German, was incidental. The man grunting at him, or more accurately, through him, was Weibachon's senior embalmer, Heino Schada, who'd been gossiped about often enough at Charlie's previous place of employ. Weibachon's, the hairdresser winked knowingly, is like a Staulag. God only knows where the lampshades come from. Whether she was referring to Shada specifically, or the Weibachon's generally, didn't matter. What he gleaned from the talk and what he took with him when he left to go work for them, was that he was not expected to understand, only to follow orders. Shada, muttering over a cosmetic pot that wouldn't open, suddenly tossed it, the airborne projectile missing Charlie's brilliant black curls by inches. Jumping out of the way, he wondered what to do next. Newly arrived from Seltonheit and Sons, his new master's most capricious competitor, expectations that he performed beyond the norm were high. Trading tit for tat, his old boss, Hartmut Flesche, had fought and lost battles with Karl Heinz Sr. since 1937 and wasn't about to abandon the bad feeling, even as he approached his 90th year. That his star apprentice had left under a tenacious cloud to go work for the enemy would no doubt hasten old Hardy's resolve to plot every last Vibagant into the ground before he got there first. It was incumbent upon Charlie, therefore, to dish some dirt, hopefully juicy enough, to shut her Seltonheit and sons for good. Stories of the two funeral directors' acrimony were legend. Late-night calls to G-men during the war asserting that Weibagant was a Nazi. Anonymous reports to the Board of Mortuary Science that Flesha reused caskets. Hints at felonious gambling, price-fixing, liquor-making, tax-evading, wife-swapping, cross-dressing, pet-embalming, covert sausage-making, smoke-houses, whore-houses, commie-loving, semite-hating, and drug-using, sexual merry-making of an unwholesomeness so heinous as to not be spoken of, but merely communicated through raised eyebrows, was just a scratch. Ducking under the low-rise water pipes that bisected Vibacon's ceiling in the lower service hall, Charlie shuddered with the thought of retributive action, if only because old men were scary and he was still young. At twenty, he had finished his requisite course requirements, albeit at an advanced age. A lot of the guys were finishing at seventeen, only to be packed off to Vietnam. But Charlie had been delayed by way of the family pig farm, which in many ways could save his hide in a pinch. As the eldest male in a house full of women, running the farm made him essential if the draft ever became an issue. It hadn't so far. He was too old. The 1950 and up birth dates pulled by lot would never include his. Yet he was haunted by the prospect of a violent end. His mother, a gentle soul who knew the Old Testament chapter and verse, never missed an opportunity to discourage his dreams for a life in the city. This only aggravated matters. He was different, and he knew it. For that reason, he had to leave. "'You'll wind up in hell if you try,' she said fondly, every time he negotiated the subject. In the end, it was a kick in the ass from the toothless old neighbor that sent him running far and fast off the front porch." You're not like the others, are you, sweetie? Don't expect an easy time from the missus, Heino Shada said offhandedly, from his vantage over a pasty deceased. Mrs. Vibagant? Charlie asked, noting that the old man used Madame Dubery commercial cosmetic in place of the heavy pancake Seltonheights favored. 
You assisted her out of a particularly difficult situation. She will expect more as a show of your constant devotion. He knocked his glass eye back into place with a long spring forceps. Charlie understood. He hadn't expected a call from the lodge that infamous night. But then, it wasn't every day that a good friend of the potentate was found dead in a hotel room under a hooker. Il flagrante delicto, Shada continued ominously in what appeared to be Latin. Indeed, Charlie said, faking a working knowledge of the dead language, the unfamiliar term, he guessed, having more to do with what Karl Heinz Weibachant was doing with a woman in a seedy hotel room than his desire to ask Shada how he made his dead look so dewy. Wow, that sounds really cool. (laughs) I can't wait for it to come out. Thank you. (laughs) You were saying that it's coming out in 2016? Yes, it's it's currently sitting uh, with my amazing editor right now, Martha Spurlock. Uh, It's encouraging that she uh, got into contact with me to tell me that she had just completed Chapter 11 and that, in her words, she found it very funny. So I find that encouraging. Once I complete the edits, then, you know, we complete the cover art design, we get everything put into place. I'm optimistic that we might have it out as early as February, but don't hold me to it. We don't have a release date yet, but expect it sometime in the early spring, I think. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will certainly look forward to Scooter Nation which will be out in the early part of 2016. And I want to thank A.B. for coming and being with us today and sharing about her journey and her new book. Thank you so much for having me, Magritte. Thanks for coming, and that's our show for today. To contact Magritte, email her at magritte.mackay at gmail.com. That's M-A-I. G-H-R-E-A-D dot M-A-C-K-A-Y at gmail dot com. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll come back and join us another time. Have a great day. Bye.